Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa. So sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. John G makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Johnji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to johnji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at johnji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I dot com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Hey, you're listening to Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie, and we have some pretty cool news. This summer, we won a national award, a Murrow, for one of our episodes that aired last year. Now, for those of you who don't know, the award is named after the famous broadcaster, Edward R. Murrow. It's been around for more than 50 years, and it's given out annually to some of the best work produced by radio and TV stations. It's kind of like an Emmy. We won Best News Documentary for our episode, After the Avalanche. It was produced by Jessica Hunt, who recently left the show this summer. But she is a rad person to work with, and she has a great eye for solid stories, including this one. So, in honor of Jessica and the Murrow Award we won, we are going to replay After the Avalanche, which first aired last May. We are really proud of it, and if you haven't heard it, it's worth a listen. Quick heads up. This is a pretty emotionally intense story. I just thought you should know in advance. On April 11th, 2019, the weather was what backcountry skiers call a bluebird day. The sky was piercingly blue, the snow was sparkling, and the sun was warm. It was a sunny day, clear, the kind of day that brings people out to recreate. And Frank Karras was investigating a possible avalanche. Hey, Frank, I got Hewlin on the line. What's the message you exactly want me to pass to him so I can get that? Here to have another human-triggered avalanche. 
He could see what's called a crown line. It's a cut across the snow where everything underneath it has fractured and tumbled down the slope. So I got in a position where I could use the binoculars. I thought I saw ski tracks going into it. Could not really confirm that there was just one, but my suspicion, my hackles were up. So I got my skis, ate an avocado, and, and took off on the snowmobile. At the time, Frank Karras was lead snow ranger and the director of the Mount Washington Avalanche Center in New Hampshire. With more and more skiers venturing out into the backcountry, it was his job to assess avalanche risk and conduct search and rescue efforts when something went wrong. And you might notice Frank sounds remarkably calm. And that's exactly the kind of quality you want in someone with this job. I just take my way, and uh, there is no, there are no tracks below the debris. Frank was pretty sure he could see ski tracks going into the avalanche, but it didn't look like anybody had come out on the other side. May very well be. Nothing happened, but this is D2 or more. D2 or more. Avalanches have their own rating system, like hurricane categories or the Richter scale. They range from a D1 to a D5, where the D stands for destructive size. A D1 is minor, loose snow sliding down the mountain. This was a D2, which doesn't sound particularly impressive, but it's still big enough to bury a person. So I turned my beacon on, put it in search mode, not really expecting to find anything because up to this point, in our area of the 14 avalanche fatalities that we've had since 1950. Not a single one of those people have been wearing an avalanche beacon. Um, and today, someone, Nick, was wearing an avalanche beacon. Have a signal, have a beacon signal 10 meters out. An avalanche beacon works like the metal detectors people use on beaches. The closer you get, the faster it beeps. So if it starts beeping rapidly and you can't see anybody in front of you, that means they're probably underneath you, under the snow. You take out what's called a probe or avalanche probe, rescue probe, and assemble that. It's basically like a 10-foot-long tent pole with a point on it. And you drive that down into the snow to do what's called a pinpoint search. And you um, are basically hoping to strike an object that feels like a person. And in this case I did, I hit his leg about, I think it was about five feet down. Positive throat throat strike at a meter. And about that same time when I hit him with a probe, I heard a noise out of the snowpack. No, really? Yeah, a moaning sound. Have moaning. Grab anyone that can hold the shovel. Need more diggers. How many times has this happened to you before? Like, has this happened to you before? No. You mean found somebody alive and it's, no. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Nate Hedgie. Every year, dozens of people get trapped in avalanches across the country. Most of these happen on mountains out west, but every once in a blue moon, someone gets trapped by an avalanche in New England. 
a place that's often belittled for having less elevation, less snow, less backcountry, where rescuers are trained for the worst, but they rarely encounter it. So what happens when the bad day finally arrives? I don't try to live with regrets, you know, would you do something different? Maybe, but hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? Today, producer Jessica Hunt brings us the story of a rescue gone sideways. A lone skier who kicked off an avalanche in New England and the people who tried to save him. When Frank first struck a body with his probe, it was about 2.18 in the afternoon. The skier was 32-year-old Nick Benedicts, but Frank did not know his name at that time. Nor did he know how long Nick had been buried, which at that point was somewhere around two hours. Did you know how long he'd been down? No, not at that point. I had no idea. And Frank had no idea what kind of shape he would be in. The terrain of New England means that if you're caught up in an avalanche, you're likely to be swept into trees or bounced off rocks. You can suffer traumatic internal injuries or be killed instantly. If not, you can asphyxiate, poisoned by the carbon dioxide of your own breath collecting under the snow. Or you can get hypothermia and die of the cold. Either way, nobody can survive if they're buried too long. You know, I got the probe strike, put my beacon away, and then just dug like there was no tomorrow. And, you know, what is the equivalent of, like, the type of density snow that you might have plowed up at the end of your driveway, you know, when the plow passes, like, that sort of density. Stepped back and dug in and moved somewhere around a metric ton and a half of snow to get to his head. That's um, a lot. Within, yeah, I mean, yeah. So Nick had been buried in almost a sitting position, like he had been leaning back on his skis, and his arms were outstretched like he was trying to grab onto something. Frank unearthed his face. Got his face. We have an airway. Nick was wearing a white helmet and an olive green fleece. I was really shocked that he was alive. He didn't sound good. He wasn't really responding to me. Call a, call a medevac. I dug down that far, believe it or not, I, I just stopped. I was exhausted and my hands were kind of frozen. You know, about the same time help had arrived. I saw Frank and Frank had Nick partially unburied. I look over there and I think, okay, that's, I know, that's, that's positive. That's a, that's, a, that's a good thing. Jeff Fonjami is the current director of the Mount Washington Avalanche Center. But at the time, he was a snow ranger. He drove a tracked snow groomer called a piston bully as close as he could to the site of the avalanche, and then he walked the rest of the way in. A couple of other skiers who happened on the scene ran to get a rescue litter, and Jeff grabbed a shovel and started digging. So we both took turns digging. It was hard. It was hard work digging through the snow where Nick was buried. This avalanche, avalanche debris comes down. It's all chopped up and turned around, and it just gets packed in hard. Overall, the avalanche wasn't that deep. At the crown line, it was on average only about 18 inches of snow. But it tumbled into a deep gully called Raymond's Cataract, where it was funneled into a narrow stream bed. Rescuers call this a terrain trap. And what it means is Nick was buried at one of the avalanche's thickest points. 
Yeah, getting his feet out was hard. You know, his feet were over six feet down in the snow. I think there were some roots down there we had to tangle with a little bit. One ski was still attached, and it was, you know, over six feet deep. And Nick was Nick was fighting at that point. He wasn't just, it wasn't just that he was alive. He was fighting to get himself out of the snow at that point. Verbally responsive, has an airway, uncertain about other injuries. We'd exposed Nick's torso and femur and I did you know like a rapid trauma check squeezing his chest and his checking his spine didn't find anything um, and in fact as soon as we had freed him from his um, backpack strap which was still sort of buried he stood up he actually fully stood up Still kind of moaning and out of it, not able to focus with his eyes on me, not not able to respond to any commands. And um, right after he stood up, he, um, you know, within a minute or two, he collapsed forward. So what did you think when he collapsed? I don't know. Like, oh shit, or what? Like... Yeah, a, a little bit. I mean, it was, we were, I think we were both surprised. He seemed, um, you know, he seemed strong. He was, he was strong. He was fighting. There's a phenomenon called circumrescue collapse. When your body is under a lot of pressure from heavy snow, taking that pressure off sets off a chain reaction. Your blood pressure plummets. Suddenly, you're not getting enough oxygen to your heart or your brain. You can go into shock and faint, and your heart can stop beating. And I think the collapse is something that we didn't we didn't expect. And um, we 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 laid him down on our platform, and we, you know, it, it takes a minute. You could, I remember it, it wasn't a minute. I'm sure it was seconds, but it feels like minutes when you just look and you think, is this is this really happening? And Next thing you know, you're you know, you're feeling for a pulse, and we couldn't find one. The problem with hypothermia is you can't actually tell when a heart has stopped beating. And just because you can't feel a pulse doesn't mean it isn't there. That's why there's the old adage, they're not dead until they're warm and dead. That's coming up after a break. You're in a place that no human's ever been before. And four of us were swept down the side of the mountain, and then I knew there was no way out of this thing. This is Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. World record-setting feats, near-death experiences, wildlife encounters, and journeys to the most remote places on Earth. About five dugout canoes coming towards me. The women had machetes. When you look in a gorilla's eyes, you connect. You're going to hear what it's like to track grizzlies in the Gobi Desert, dive to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, drive a rickshaw across India, and lots more. Find Armchair Explorer, a part of American Public Television Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Go and find what it is in the world that matches that wildness in yourself. 
and you are in some kind of paradise. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie. There are somewhere between three and five stages of hypothermia, depending on who you ask. A lot of people have had a brush with the first one, where you shiver uncontrollably and you feel like you can't warm up until you've had a hot shower. But the third stage, severe hypothermia, is not something most people will ever experience. Severe hypothermia is quite rare. Um, I will say in 10 years of practicing as an emergency physician in cold environments, I've seen a handful of these. It's, It's very rare. Nick Weinberg is an emergency physician at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center in Lebanon, New Hampshire. He's also a backcountry skier himself. Actually, when we spoke, he was about to go on a trip to Georgia, the country, to ski in the Caucasus Mountains. And I've skied most of the ravines in, on Mount Washington, or many of them. If you're severely hypothermic, your system shuts down. You might look dead, you might not have a detectable pulse, but you might not actually be dead. Their peripheral blood vessels are clamped down, and their heart may be beating extremely slowly. So you may not even feel a pulse, even though their heart uh, might actually be working. It's just slowed down. And that's why there's the old adage, they're not dead until they're warm and dead. So you wouldn't stop resuscitating a patient until you've warmed them up, and then you find that they don't have a pulse. In order to have a fighting chance, patients like this ought to be warmed from the inside out. A hypothermic heart is unstable and weak. Warming from the outside can actually make it worse. Enter extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, or ECMO. ECMO is one of the highest levels of life support, higher even than a ventilator. The machine takes the blood out of a body, warms it up, removes carbon dioxide, then pumps the blood back in the body, all while filling in for the heart and lungs. If a severely hypothermic patient makes it to an ECMO center, they can basically get brought back from the dead. Basically, the data says that if you have a patient with a witnessed uh, cardiac arrest from hypothermia, um, so they are dead, essentially, uh, and you transport them 
to an ECMO center, they have a 50%, some studies say even 60% survival to full, like full neuro- neurological capability. And that's, those, that's like an amazing statistic. Is CPR continuing? Yes, we can either not find a pulse or it's been so weak that we don't, we don't trust it. Um, Before the break, Snow Rangers Frank Karras and Jeff Fonjami were digging skier Nick Benedicts out from underneath an avalanche on Mount Washington. As far as they could tell, Nick didn't have a pulse. But he was young and in great shape. He was even breathing. Nick had severe hypothermia. But he was exactly the sort of person who might be saved by an ECMO machine. Producer Jessica Hunt picks the story back up from here. When you think of CPR, you might think of the song Stayin' Alive. If you're doing chest compressions, you want to keep as regular a rhythm as much as possible. But when a patient's temperature has dropped below a certain threshold, you don't actually need to keep the beat. That's because of a phenomenon called the metabolic icebox. Severe hypothermia basically puts your organs, your brain, and your need for oxygen on ice. Even irregular, intermittent CPR can help keep a patient alive until they get to an ECMO center, which is exactly what Frank started doing. I started CPR initially. Um, he was breathing agonally. What's that mean? Um, like a, I call it fish breathing. When someone's dying, when you're like, <gasps> really spaced out, not, not healthy breaths. What sort of medical, uh, advanced medical do you have coming? Life flight is in the air. Okay, um, we need to get in there. Frank started intermittent CPR at 2.34. At this point, more than two and a half hours since the avalanche first buried Nick. He's in a sled you know, rescue litter toboggan on the snow. We're sliding him through the woods, you know, one hand on the litter, one hand on his chest, pumping as best we can. And how's he being pulled by the... Two couple of other people are pulling on ropes, and we're trying to keep the sled from falling with him falling into the stream. Meanwhile, Frank is also keeping medics updated by radio. He knew that Nick still had a chance, even though they couldn't find a pulse. Okay, uh, just for plan purposes, there was appeared to be deep hypothermia or pretty solid hypothermia. He might be assisted by extracorporeal oxygenation and uh, an external and internal rewarming effort. When Frank and his crew had gotten Nick to the parking lot at the base of Mount Washington, it was 3.30. They'd been giving him intermittent CPR for an hour ever since he first collapsed. You know, by the time we got there, there was a, an ambulance and a flight crew of, uh, you know, paramedics and nurses and whatnot waiting to receive receive us. In the helicopter? We, um, yeah, the helicopter landed there. It was there already? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they worked on him. We transferred him, and they worked on him for 20 minutes and uh, before declaring death. And where was he headed? Where, were, where was he going? They didn't go anywhere. They don't... They didn't go anywhere? No. 
Nick was declared dead from hypothermia at 4 p.m. He was never flown to an ECBO center. The flight medics only gave him 20 minutes of CPR before making the call. He would always text me on these adventures. You know, okay, it would be seven, 6 o'clock in the morning, and he'd be like, I'm going here and here and here. I'm going to park my car here. This is Nick's partner, Denise Butler. That afternoon, she was waiting for him to check in. But he never did. You know, and I got that, like, sinking feeling. I was out for a walk with my mom and just had this really sinking feeling and, and, and saw on the news, you know, oh, avalanche fatality on Washington. And I just sort of, I knew, you know, uh, yeah. Rescuers performed CPR as they transported him down the mountain. A medevac helicopter was on site, but medics pronounced the man dead. Experts say the snow can be unpredictable this time of year. So who was Nick Benedicts? It was a dance down the mountain. Every time you watched Nick ski, it was lovely. Denise says he was a quiet guy with a love of 70s bands like Queen and Rush. Just this tall, lanky, goofy kid. But more to the point, what happened? When it happened, I was, I think, probably uh, and maybe expectedly mad and angry at the search and rescue, like, you know, why, why couldn't they have gotten to him sooner? Or uh, why weren't there different protocols in place? After a tragedy like this, people tend to start asking, where did things go wrong? Who messed up? Why didn't the flight medics take Nick to an ECMO center? I reached out to the flight nurse in charge that day and the medevac company, Life Flight of Maine, but they both declined to comment. But it turns out, state protocols at that time wouldn't allow them to take off with a patient who didn't have a pulse. That's because it's dangerous to administer CPR in a moving helicopter. If this were any other type of cardiac arrest, this would not have been a controversial case. But remember... Dr. Weinberg said a severely hypothermic patient shouldn't be considered dead until they're warm and dead, even if that means putting CPR on hold. So did the flight medics screw up? You could argue that they did. But was it their fault if they were just following protocols, especially when severe hypothermia is so rare? So, what about Nick? Did he screw up by going out there in the first place? It sounds awful to point blame at the victim. There are folks who get hurt or killed on Mount Washington who are woefully underprepared. And Nick was skiing alone in the backcountry, which is never a good idea. But frankly, a lot of people do it. And Nick had a lot of experience. He'd been skiing since he was a toddler. The day he hiked up Mount Washington... He had a ski repair kit, a first aid kit, and a notebook with his notes about snow crystal types. 
You know, his entire bedroom was gear. Climbing gear, ski gear, you know, it was old and tattered, but he was prepared. You know. I think one of the reasons this case is so upsetting is because you can look back at mistakes that were made, but you can't know if anything would have changed the outcome. Even if Nick had been transported to an ECMO center, even if he had been found earlier or had skied with a partner, he still might have died that day. I think that anger has just turned into, like, hopefully it doesn't happen to the next person. I actually went and sat in the piston bully and cried for five or ten minutes. And I uh, was exhausted and really shaken up and uh, really felt that he could have been any one of my friends or members of the community, could have been me. Had he been alone, you know, he had no trauma, he, he died of hypothermia, basically. So if someone had been there and was able to excavate him and dig him out, he would have just got up and walked away. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, uh, that's... That's pretty heavy stuff, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, on a beautiful April day. Yeah. Frank Harris did everything he could. And as far as we know, he did everything right. But Nick's death took a toll on him. He had nightmares of being the one under the snow, flashbacks, an angry outburst that prompted him to seek help. When there's an avalanche rescue, a lot of time, what responders are really doing is just looking for a body. So imagine finding a person buried alive under tons of snow and then seeing that person stand up after so much effort. And then the despair when those ambulance doors close and the helicopter doesn't take off. This was a chance to actually save someone. And it must have been such a shock when Nick was declared dead. The Mount Washington Avalanche Center Snow Rangers have access to counselors. But like other first responders, you have to be a willing participant to benefit And not everybody may know how to seek help when it comes to PTSD or recognize it months later. Here's Jeff Fondjami. One of the regrets that I have is that as as a rescue team, we were not set up very well to to take care of each other as, as teammates as far as mental health goes and stress of that sort of event. I know that at that time, I remember Frank had a very hard time with it and... Eventually, Frank and the Avalanche Center, our team, put together. We had a, we were able to sit down with a with a um, mental health counselor as a group. So I'm hoping that if you know if this were to happen again, I think we'd have better resources for us as as rescuers to try and process what happened and potentially protect ourselves from these events that could happen again. Do you have better resources, or are you more aware that you should have better resources? 
we're more aware that we should have better resources. That's a good distinction. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. We have resources, but I'm not entirely satisfied with the resources yet. We need to do better. It's definite progress from the days of debriefing after a traumatic experience with a beer at the bar. But in researching the story, I found a lot of search and rescue folks don't want to talk about what they do. Maybe they don't want to be seen as some kind of hero or to make an adventure story out of other people's tragedies or mishaps. Or maybe it's part of the stiff upper lip, suck it up ethos. Sometimes it happens right away and sometimes these events are like scars. They accumulate until you reach a tipping point. Some individuals aren't going to want to open up and talk in, in front of other people. Um, you know, so they may, they may need some, something different. I, I, I don't think that I'm like this, but say a person in the, direct, the director's role of the Avalanche Center is, is supposedly they come with experience and know-how and they've kind of been around the block for a few times. Like, would the director want to go into a, a, a meeting and start crying? You know, is that a leadership role if you're, if you're showing your emotion? I'm, personally, I'm fine with that, but I could see where, you know, a, a person wouldn't be. Or not even the director, anybody. Like, some people are just not comfortable talking about things in front of other people. So it's a, the answer is complicated. EMT protocols have changed in New Hampshire since Nick's death. And that was really propelled by the grief and anger that Frank Karras felt. He channeled it, in a way, into making sure no one dies like this again. Regulations now allow for transporting severely hypothermic patients to ECMO centers, regardless of whether they have a pulse. They've also extended the amount of time CPR is performed, even if it has to be paused for the patient to be airlifted. I've talked to his dad a lot since then, and he asked me to come to their memorial service for him, and I went and shared just to let the public know that, you know, Nick didn't die alone. No. People were there rooting for him and doing their best. Experience and risk are entangled for wilderness EMTs in a way that is different from other first responders. Firefighters, for example, can go through similar trauma in trying to save lives. But in the backcountry, you're likely to have a lot in common with the people you save. The line between rescuers and the folks in trouble can be very, very it's an awfully small community. We all we all know each other. Like like Nick, you know Nick, when he came out of the snow, Frank and I didn't talk about this, but I, I know this happened. It happened to me. You look and you see who it is, and you want to think, do I know this person? Do I recognize that face? And, and, and we didn't we didn't recognize the face. Neither of us had met him before. But he um, he looks like. 75 other people that we know. So yeah, it could totally be one of us. There's a move lately in the avalanche safety community to change the term risk assessment to loss assessment. How much are you willing to lose for this run? And who are you leaving behind? Avalanches are notorious for creating what's known as a wicked learning environment. When a situation arrives, you either survive and learn from it, or you don't. But the people who love to ski the backcountry love it. And they're going to be out there regardless. Especially 
on a bluebird day. To learn more about avalanche safety, severe hypothermia, and to read the Mount Washington Avalanche Center's report after Nick's death, go to our website, outsideinradio.org, or check out the links on our show notes. Outside In was produced and reported this week by Jessica Hunt. It was edited by Taylor Quimby and me, Nate Hedgie, with help and feedback from Rebecca Lavoie, Justine Paradise, Felix Poon, Erica Janik, Sam Evans-Brown, Jimmy Gutierrez, and Christina Phillips. It was mixed by Taylor Quimby. Our executive producer is Rebecca Lavoie. Special thanks to Matt Dustin, Ty Gagne, Frank Hubble, and Andrew Perella. Music in this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is made possible with your support. So if you like this story and you want us to keep making the show, donate. There's a link in our show notes. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. can start your day off right when you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.